regular people are taking their knowledge and content, packaging it up in an online course, and they're making a living doing it. But not everyone is successful with online courses. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I'm here to help course creators actually succeed with online courses. Hi, I'm Jacques Hopkins, and this is the Online Course Show. And off we go. Welcome aboard. Glad you're with us. I am your host, Jacques Hopkins. And as usual, our co-host, what's going on, Dr. K? Oh, I'd say I'm about a 7.8 out of 10. How are you doing? That's oddly specific, sir. Oddly specific. <laughs> Your beard is looking well today, but I'm, I'm curious what's going on under the hat. You having a bad hair day? Oh, man. Negative 11 degrees overnight here. So, I mean, pretty chilly. So I got some hat hair from wearing a big, uh, big, big hat on the way into work. That's so. brutal, man. I don't know that I've ever experienced negative 11. There, there's a reason I don't live in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Man, today is... Uh, I think the low 65, high 75. This is, I, I can get down with this weather. This is my type of weather. Dang. So what's your candy bowl ketchup for the week, Jacques? Candy bowl ketchup. Okay. So yeah, I gotta... like, uh, remember, remember back when people worked in offices, you know, it's like the talkative people put out that bowl of candy to try to lure mm. over people. Did you have that in your office? Yeah, we did have a candy bowl. And there was this one guy, older guy, diabetic loved candy man shout out to don back in the day don was all about the candy and we'd all be like don what are you doing man you're diabetic he just loved candy (laughs) anyway man we got off the rails quickly here today so i'll update you on recording the new version of my course because you know originally i set out to record it all in one day just like i have always done with with the versions of my piano course this is now the sixth version the first day I went to record, I got through day 11. And last time I was talking about how I was going to just do the second half all in one day. And, um, or maybe two times ago. And, you know, I got to day 20 and then ran out of gas. So did I finish? Yes, I finished. So this past Friday, I recorded day 21, but I've been really batching these videos so well lately, turning on the cameras, you know, doing my hair, getting my microphone all set up, my piano, just how I wanted it. And just recording one video, I felt like was kind of a waste. So I recorded not only day 21, but a couple of new YouTube videos as well. And so hopefully the days of just like kind of recording one video at a time are are over. I've been really a fan of batching videos lately. Awesome. Now, last time we recorded, you mentioned possibly doing some, some celebration element. Did you end up adding something like that to that last lesson? Well, I definitely really just like, almost got a little emotional just like explaining to because like I have exercises for every day and like the very at last exercise of the entire course exercise 21.4 is simply celebrate so I spent a couple of minutes talking about that like all the ways you could celebrate this and that and so I didn't like pop a bottle of champagne on air like I uh, like I talked about possibly doing I didn't didn't have anything super gimmicky like that but I definitely really pressed into the fact that they should be very proud of themselves if they actually did the work and you know they did the exercises and they're you know playing songs or playing in front of other people in front of loved ones celebrate you know take a loved one out to dinner you know drink i i I mentioned opening some champagne or if they're not into that some sparkling grape juice or something so i definitely spent a fair amount of time talking about that the last version of my course i think day 21's video was maybe two minutes long and this one's probably 25 minutes long (laughs) 
Wow. I'm actually teaching some a few new things. I'm like, here's some directions you could go. And then I really talk about how, you know, how proud of themselves they should be and to share this gift of music. I talked about the story of of my 98-year-old great-grandmother who's no longer with us, but how she was playing piano all the way till her last days and that now that they have learned piano that they could be doing that too. That's one of the great things about this. It's not like football or um you know, basketball, where you know, eventually you kind of get too old to be able to do it. This is something you can do. You know, most people can do for the rest of their lives. That's awesome. Yeah, and just sharing it with others. I mean, you can share the playing, but also, I don't know. Have you ever had a student who really shared that they taught somebody else how to play piano after learning yours? Interesting. Just kind of paying it forward. Um, no, I don't. I don't think I've heard a story like that. But that would be. Interesting. When people do, when people reach out about like, hey, is, can my kid do it? Are they too young? My advice typically is that like the parent and the kid go through it together. Um, but I don't think I've had a story where they then started teaching piano. Yeah. So I learned guitar in, in college my sophomore year and my friend Buddy taught me. And, and that was one of the best gifts he's ever given me is just sat down, showed me, hey, if you learn these three chords, you can play a thousand songs. And I just started strumming. But I uh, I didn't realize that my friend Matt, I knew that we started playing together, but I didn't know that he gave me the credit for being the one that taught him to play guitar. But we hung out uh, back at that guy's get together where I got the black eye and he was like, yeah, dude, you taught me. And and I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was like a, a feather in my hat of my life. So super cool. It's an honor to be able to teach other people right. things. It, it really is. Um, whether it's in an online course or just teaching your buddy something. I know when I was a little kid, I had a, a cousin who is actually, he's two months younger than me, actually. So we're very similar ages. And he's the one that taught me to ride a bike. I remember, you know, <laughs> we're you know five years old or something like that. And, and for whatever reason, it wasn't one of my parents. It wasn't one of my older sisters. My cousin came over and he had learned how to ride a bike. And he's the one that taught me. And I will always remember that. More recently, I have a, a really good friend, a neighbor who's, who's probably 40 years old, who you know, he's, he's got some young kids as well. And, and we had some, some little balls and, and I started juggling. Uh, do you know how to juggle? Oh yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, it's some people know how to juggle. Some people don't. And he's, he's very athletic. He actually played college baseball. And, um, I was surprised he didn't know how to juggle. And I was like, look, uh, let me show you, I can show you how to juggle. And within two minutes he was juggling. And so I taught him that, but I was like, man, I learned to juggle when I was about 12 because my friend's older brother taught me and he taught me a really simple trick, and I always remember that. And now I was able to pass that along to my friend about how to juggle. So simple things here. You know, I'm not planning on putting an online course together about how to juggle <laughs> or how to ride a bike, or you know, I've got actually got a Rubik's cube right here. Do you know how to do a Rubik's cube? No, but that's one of your examples in your uh, in your course on how to make a course. I think so. No, I've never solved yeah. a Rubik's cube. Yeah, maybe I'll have to show you one day. I know I can do it in about three minutes. Um, there's some people that can do it in like 15 seconds, which I have no idea how. But yeah, so maybe I can show you one day because there's great power in being able to teach people <laughs> how to do things, whether it's little things like this or big things like learning piano or starting a business uh, or, or you know getting more chiropractor clients and so on. Nice. Next, let's um, let's go here. Let's go. Let's talk about a couple tools that I've been enjoying lately. Okay. So let's, let's start with the, the, the most important one. If you're out there listening to this, and David, if you haven't done this yet, this might be a really good fit for you as well. But if you're out there listening, I've got a tool that if you're not using it, like stop everything you're doing and please use it. 
Okay. It's called the Newsfeed Eradicator. Okay. No. Well, I mean, I've, I've got an idea where it's going. So we've talked about variations of this, I yeah. think. Man, I've been very anti like infinity feeds lately. You know, we talked uh, we, that book we read and reviewed on the podcast, Make Time. You know, they talked about infinity feeds, which is, are these apps and these feeds that you can just keep scrolling on forever and ever and ever. The Facebook news feed, Instagram. Um, even YouTube is like that, Reddit. And there's this Google Chrome extension called the Newsfeed Eradicator. I learned about it years ago and have been using it. And I literally don't see my Facebook newsfeed. So I, I do use Facebook pretty much for business. You know, I've got the online course community. Um, my, my piano group is on there and so on. But it's so easy to get distracted on Facebook, especially if you see the newsfeed, right? So if you're mm-hmm. not using it for that, try using it. But here's the, here's the update, because I'm sure I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I was looking at the settings of it, and they now offer, you can check a box for Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, and a few others. And one of the, the news feeds that, that really gets me, because I, I use YouTube a lot, right? I've got like uh, 80,000 subscribers on my piano channel. There's an online course guy channel. And I also consume a lot of content on YouTube. I love YouTube. But I'll jump on there like for a specific purpose. Like I want to go look up how to do something on Buddy Boss. And I'll go to YouTube and then I'll get sucked into the news feed. <laughs> or if that's even what you call it on YouTube. But they'll recommend you videos that are pertinent to you. And um, so yesterday I discovered that you can apply that to other sites. And I checked all the boxes and I'm so pumped about that. And if I can eliminate just every infinity feed for my life, then I'm good with that. Hmm. Well, that sounds good. But then I'm over here like, well, what are you actually watching on YouTube, which is completely counterproductive to the discussion. But what are the YouTube things that will suck you in like uh, like LSU updates on YouTube or what is it? Sure. Yeah. So sports stuff um, for sure. Crypto stuff. Um, okay. A, a con- I didn't know you were down that rabbit hole. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm into it a little bit for sure. Um, I'm, I'm not not hardcore, not day trading or anything. A little bit. Um, I'm not a big into politics. It just makes me more mad than anything else. So not much of that, but I am into just like the economy and how the economy right. might affect my business in particular. Um, and so those are the types of of things that I get into. And it's it's. I mean, people listening will know about the YouTube rabbit hole. Right. And so right. I would like to try to, you know, I don't want to eliminate YouTube completely because there's huge value there. But the more I can just use it for my intended purpose and then get out and not get sucked into anything else, the better. Sounds good. Get, can, I, can I challenge you here? Can you, are you going to check out the Newsfeed Eradicator? Uh, no, because I, no, because, well, I mean, I, my bigger issue is my phone than yeah. like probably a, an, a, any one computer in my house. So. I'm up and down with my usage. Um, but again, for me, it's it's really just the Facebook. <laughs> I don't know why, but the other ones don't get me. YouTube doesn't get me. Yeah, everybody's got Nothing their vice. So for those listening on the computer, check out Newsfeed Eradicator. And then if you do struggle on your phone, there's an app called Freedom, which I use. We've talked about that before as well. I won't spend any more time on that here today. The other tool that I'll recommend for... Um, for this audience is Alphonic, A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C, which is a really nice tool for just almost instantly improving audio, okay? So pretty much since episode one, well, maybe not episode one because the audio in episode one was awful, but 
on this podcast, like well, that's one of the last steps we always do is we run it through this tool called Alphonic, alphonic.com. And it just does amazing things to the quality of your audio that either would be impossible manually or just take a lot of time. But what I realized recently is that it works just as well for video. You can upload a mm-hmm. video to Alphonic and it'll just, it'll take the audio and modify it. And then you can, it'll apply it to back to the video and then you can download your video with the improved audio. And we've, we've been running all of our new online course videos through Alphonic at the end. And my video editor, who's amazing, is not, he's not an audio editor and he tries to do little things here and there. He had never heard of Alphonic and I, I showed it to him and he's like, man, this is unbelievable. Like I, it would have taken mm. me hours and hours and hours to even come close to doing what this was able to do like that. And so just, uh, just some advice out there. If you're making YouTube videos or you're making online course videos, check out alphonic.com. It's, it's not free, but it's not expensive either. You pay by uh, credits. So it's like, it, it depends on how many minutes the, the audio or the video is. Um, so it's pretty inexpensive in general from my perspective. But it's it's a cool tool, and we've been using it for these new online course videos. That sounds great. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Now, uh, in the online course community, uh, your Facebook group, I've noticed that there's been a big bump of uh, people joining that group. Do you have anything to uh, credit the the increased people joining there? You know, I'm not really tracking it. Is that is that right? I know we're getting close to to a thousand uh, members, and probably by the time that this actually airs, I'm sure we'll be over a thousand. Um, but that's you've you've noticed it's been going up. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's uh, I have been on a couple of of podcasts lately. You know, that's I think that's one of the top ways I could grow this brand is is to just be on other podcasts because that's my main platform for this brand is is a podcast. Ha- have you heard um, any? Uh, have you heard me on any other podcasts lately? Um, let's see here. E commerce uncensored. Is that right? So one was um, Kate Kordsmeyer's podcast, who was was on my podcast, and you know that was that was a really fun episode. She's really talented. I know me and you both agreed that like she's going really really big places. And she um, after after I interviewed her, she she invited me on her podcast, which is interesting because she has mostly female guests on. It's called <laughs> um, it's called Success with Soul, and uh, it's I've been listening to it. It's a great podcast. Check it out with Kate Kordsmeyer. Um and she said on that episode when I came on her show that I was only the third male that's been on her podcast. (laughs) And she also told me that I got the record for the longest episode. So we just had a super good conversation about online business, online courses, very casual, like I like to do on my podcast. And we already knew each other a good bit by the time I got on her podcast. So it it was a very fun conversation. So you can check out Success with Soul. And then I was also on a podcast called Ecommerce Uncensored. Which was which was fun. Also very casual. A uh, couple of guys up in New Jersey do that podcast, and um, it's more about just e-commerce and online business in, in general. And they don't they don't I don't think they've had a lot of course creators on the their podcast. But interesting guys, you know, they're they're one of their claims to fame um, here recently is they they partnered one with, with one of their podcast listeners who who had a wildlife photography like membership course. And they they decided to just go into business together 50-50. And these guys did all the marketing and Facebook ads. The other guy did all the content. And they did like $2 million in a year. Wow. So I'm, I'm actually, I've actually invited those guys to come on, on this podcast to share that story about how you can't, you don't necessarily have to be like the expert and the, and the content creator 
to succeed with online courses, you could be more of the business marketing uh, advertising side and partner up with somebody who is really into the content, into their niche. Um, so look for that episode down the road, but I was but I was on their podcast. It's called E-Commerce Uncensored. So those are a couple of podcasts I was on here recently. All right. That sounds good. I'll have to check those out. Yeah, man. Um, so anything else before we jump into the conversation of the day? No, let's talk about weaving. Let's talk about weaving. Um, I don't know how to weave. I did, I, before this, I knew nothing about weaving. Do, are you a big weaver, David? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't gotten beyond beginner. So Tian Shu. Uh, Tian Shu is a um, far beyond a beginner weaver. Um, I, I've actually been trying to get her on for a while. She's, she's pretty active in a few Facebook groups that I'm in related to online courses. And anytime that we, we can find a success story like this in a niche like weaving, like I'm, I'm all ears, right? We've, we've talked about this many times, but I don't want this just to be about, you know, courses on courses, courses on online business, courses teaching money, right? I want to have a fair share of B to C type courses where we're just like, like she's teaching people to make things with, with their hands. That's so cool. You know, if we can, if we can have more people teaching, to make things with their hands, to make music, to make art. Like I'm all for that for sure. Um, so, so she's been very, very successful with this. Um, and she's also very niche down too. It's not just weaving, but let's talk about weaving for a second. Let me, let me, I looked it up the definition like Wikipedia. Okay. So here's the definition of weaving. Weaving is a method of textile production in which two distinct sets of yarns are threads two distinct sets of yarns or threads are interlaced at right angles to form a fabric or cloth. So I think that's one of the important parts about it is it's two distinct Mm -hmm. yarns or threads like kind of woven together, right? That's what weaving is. The longitudinal threads are called the warp and the lateral threads are called the weft woof or filling. Cloth is usually (laughs) woven on a loom, which is the device that holds the warp threads in place while filling threads are woven through them. The way the warp and filling threads interlace with each other is called the weave. Woven cloth can be plain or it can be woven in decorative or artistic design. So Tien's website is warpandweave.com, which now makes total sense based on that definition. And she does not just teach people to weave. Her niche is the color in weave. So that, that kind of the end of that Wikipedia definition was Woven cloth can be plain or it can be woven in decorative or artistic design. Like that's where she focuses. She focuses on the decorative, the colors, making the colors pop, stand out. That's my understanding anyway. So that's her niche. She's been incredibly successful. She does things a little differently than I've heard before as well. So uh, without further ado, that's, that's kind of my setup, my introduction. So here's the full conversation between myself and Tian Chu. Hi, Tian. Welcome to the Online Course Show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's let's start with uh, with kind of present day and, and work our way backwards because I know this the, you, you've got a you've got an elaborate story that I would love to get into. But as of today, what who do you teach and what are you teaching them? So I'm teaching online about weaving, and I'm teaching actually about color and weaving, which is sort of the nichiest niche of <laughs> all. But I'm actually doing pretty well with it. I had eleven thousand students this past year and 8,000 unique students. So 11,000 people enrolled in my classes and uh, 8,000 students total. Yeah, some people enroll in more than one course. Right, that's right. right so, so what is weaving? 
Weaving is the art of interlacing threads to form cloth. And so you have a loom and, uh, gosh, how do we even explain it? <laughs> it's the process of making cloth. So like the fabric in a shirt, for example, you would actually weave on, on a loom. It's not quite like knitting. So your sweatshirt, for example, is, is knitted, but the fabric in your jeans is all woven. Oh, cool. So, but, but my jeans wouldn't be something that, that one person using a loom wove, or, or is, that, is that how it works? Well, that's how it used to work back in the 1800s. Okay. But these days it's all done by machine. Okay. But people who enjoy making cloth now sit at looms and design and weave their own cloth. Most people don't, of course, weave everything that they wear, but people weave all sorts of different things. These days it's mostly towels and scarves and things like that. But I wove my wedding dress and that was a lot of fun. Wow, that is impressive. So I'm and not. It's now so and it's now in a museum. It's in a museum. It's in. The, it's at the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan. I don't even know where to go, Tien. Uh, I was, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to quickly mention for anybody's like, what's a loom? I'm I'm at your website right now, warpandweave.com, Right, that's your main right. website, and there's a picture of you at the top, and I'm assuming that device that you're with is, that a is loom, is a yeah. loom right? So that's mm-hmm. that's the main piece of equipment that you use to to make these creations and some of which end up in a museum. Yes. All right. So how long had you been doing this when you decided to weave your own wedding dress? Uh, About two and a half years, believe it or not. I was a little crazy, but I started weaving and I fell just madly down the rabbit hole. I had been spinning and knitting and I had gotten bored with both of them and somebody told me to try weaving because it was the most intellectually interesting of all the fiber arts. And I tried it and she was absolutely right. And I just got totally hooked and fell for it. And at the time I was a project manager at Google. So art was like the last thing on my mind. But like I said, I fell straight away down the rabbit hole and that was it. Okay. So would you consider yourself more left brain or right brain? Oh, left brain. I was raised by two scientists and I majored in math at Caltech. So you know, I was as left brain as you can get. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I like to tell people um, with my piano style, my piano approach that I've got a very left brain approach to how I teach piano. And that's one of the three things that sets my piano course apart is that most online courses or most uh, music education is taught by people with music degrees who spent their whole life in music. Whereas I don't know if you know this about me, but I was an electrical engineer for eight years and a project manager. So I'm extremely left brain oh, as well. Wow. Maybe not quite to your level because I don't have two scientist parents, but I've broken down the piano learning process and teach it kind of in a different way than most people do. And so when you say that, that you're so left brain, but yet normally weaving, I would say is more of a right brain activity. Is that fair to say? Weaving is kind of a left brainy, right brainy activity, but I'm teaching color and weaving. I describe myself as an art scientist. And so what I'm teaching is the science of art. And so what I've done is I've broken down color in a very science sort of approach. I think about the way that the human visual system reacts to color. And then I break it down in terms of this is how the visual system reacts to color. And this is how you design taking into account the way that the visual system reacts to color. So I'm not at all a touchy-feely, this is how you intuit color. I break it down, color into, down into a logical system and teach color in a systemat- systematic form. And that 
is how I approach color. And that's my particular twist. I'm not going to teach you an intuitive approach to color. I'm going to teach you how color works. And that's been very, very popular because a lot of people don't have an intuition for color. And instead of substituting intuition, I'm teaching people how color works. And is that something that I guess you kind of just mentioned it, but that's something that weavers are, are struggling with. And you come in and you help existing weavers really get better at this, this, this color piece. That's right. Because color and weaving is actually much more complicated than color in knitting or any other art. Because with weaving, what happens is you take fabrics that are threads that are going and uh, interlacing perpendicular to each other. And so in knitting, if you want a piece of a bit of red and a bit of blue, you knit a swatch of red and a swatch of blue and you kind of slap them together. In weaving, you're basically, it goes over and under and over and under. And so if you have red goes in one direction, blue goes in the other direction. And so the only thing you can't get is pure red and pure blue. They're always interweaving with each other. And so color and weaving is much more complex. And so you have to understand the structure of the fabric as well as the way that the colors mix. And so you have to understand the system of the color as well as sort of how the colors go together. It's much harder to intuit. And so that, that's what I teach. Well, I'll be honest with you. I don't know the first thing about weaving at all, much less the color part of all this. I'm, I'm trying, to, um, trying to process all this as somebody who doesn't know anything about it. But if somebody's listening to this and, and they just happen to want to get into weaving, you've inspired them to want to get into weaving, would mm-hmm. you even be the right person to go to? Or is it strictly people already weaving that come to you that need help with the color piece? It's pretty much strictly people who are already weaving. Uh, I've got a friend who does teach beginning weaving. And so I refer people to them if they want to take up beginning weaving. I work with weavers who have already been weaving and want to understand the color part of it. So my niche is pretty, is pretty niche Sounds like it. That's what we were getting to. So at this point, do you, what do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy the actual weaving or teaching others the, the color and weave? Both. I've been spending most of my team teaching people right now. But I realized that what I enjoy most is actually uh, the scientific research and then teaching people about the scientific research. So I was raised by a pair of scientists, right? And so I realized that what I really enjoy most is doing the research and then publishing my results. <laughs> and so it's the, it's the learning something and then taking it off and teaching it that I really enjoy. So I enjoy the, right, the learning something, blogging about it, and then teaching it. And so this is the perfect thing for me because I've learned how to make a living doing exactly what I love. I get it. I get it. I, I geek out on this stuff too, like the actual steps and, and, and formulas and everything for a curriculum. I'm constantly making sure that my, my, my approach and my curriculum for piano is the best. And I'll, and I'll, I'll go and I'll you know, be talking to my wife and I'm like, you know, I really think that this should come here instead of there. And I just like really geek out on it to try to make it the best possible structure for somebody to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, it sounds like you, you really geek out on that, that part of, of things as well. And that's one of the reasons you've been so successful, I'm sure. Yes, because it's not just about learning how color works. It's also about learning about curriculum design and how best to make this not only a, a good class, but also how to make it a fun class and how to build a community around that class. And because with weaving, it's not just about 
building a class and teaching people, but it's also how to build a community of weavers who are all enjoying the class and who want to come back to your classes. I found that what I do is I have large free classes, and then I take that large free class and I and I pitch the paid class to the people in the free classes. And so by building a community in the free class, that's what brings people into the paid class because they had a lot of fun in the free class. Mm. So success with online courses is not just about having a good curriculum, not just recording a sequence of videos. In your opinion, Mm -hmm. it's much more than that. That's right. For my classes, it's really been about building a community. So I do weave-alongs and I teach people in the weave-alongs. And so I ran a class of 5,000 people. And so I did a weave-along. And people would do a project in the class, and they would share the results in a Facebook group. And I would teach people in the class. So I would teach them about color and weaving, and we did a project. And people would share the results and have a lot of fun. And at the end, and sort of about three quarters of the way through the class, I said, and we're going to be doing another class, a paid class. And you can learn a lot more in the paid class. And people were having a lot of fun and created a community in in the free class. And a lot of people signed up for the paid class and I'm running the paid class right now. And people are having a lot of fun and continuing that community in the paid class. Okay. I have have so many questions about this because it it sounds like you've got a really dialed in system. Not only have you figured out how to most effectively teach your particular niche, but you're, you're also at a higher level, like figuring out the most effective way to do online courses and marketing and all that. It's no surprise Mm -hmm. given your background and what we've talked about already. So Let's start here. Like, why would somebody why would somebody want to pay for the class, the next class, when they've already taken the free class? Like, what's different in the paid version? The paid version is a much more extensive version of the free version. So, the free version was a three week class, and the paid version is a six week class that is much more in depth. So, the free version had maybe five or six lessons per week, and sort of touched briefly on a couple of different topics. And the paid class has something like 17 lessons per week. It was much more in-depth on uh, a much wider variety of topics. So there was a lot more, there's a lot more content in the paid class. And so the free class was basically a taster. It had a lot of useful information in it and taught the basics, but it's kind of like teaching somebody to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, to use the piano metaphor, as opposed to teaching somebody how to play, I don't know, Beethoven Sonata. Appreciate the the piano comparison. <laughs> and so, and, and people recognized it. So the free class gave people some basic skills and gave them some idea of what they could expect to learn in the paid class. Got it. You know, my, the way I've structured my business is I have a free workbook. You know, a lot of people talk about um, freebies, lead magnets. And that's what I've had for years is people can go on, you go to my website right now, you can get, um, it's called learn 36 popular songs in five days. It's basically mm-hmm. the first five days of my 21 day course, but it's in a work, it's in a, a book form in text and um, images mm-hmm. as opposed to video. So like what you're saying, like it gives people a little taste, it gives people a sample, but it doesn't give away everything. And if they want everything, then they would go and pay for it. So it sounds mm-hmm. like a similar model and approach to what you're doing, but I'm getting the I'm getting the uh, the vibe that maybe your free thing is is presented live. Is that what you're doing? It is presented live, and it was actually a lot of work because it was a three week class, right. and so 
it was a three-week class with a Facebook group and with live Q&A sessions and live demo sessions. And so it was a full-on class. But And so it was a lot of effort, but it did a couple of things. One, it established a relationship with the students that we couldn't possibly have done without, you know, with, with a book or something like that. I had a free class earlier and that was that didn't have any live components and it didn't have nearly the conversion rate. I had something like, I think, eight or 10% of the students in the, in this free class sign up for the paid class, which is a pretty phenomenal mm-hmm. sign up rate. And the other thing that was different was that I had a huge number of people sign up for this free class and it formed a community of students. And I think that was important as well because uh, it really built a pool of people that it, it built a lot of goodwill, I suppose, is maybe the right way of putting it. And people told their friends. And so I think that also helped in terms of putting me more on the map for the weaving community because my, my community is small and everybody knows each other. And so it built a lot of goodwill in the community. Okay. So it's not just about selling the class per se, but it's also about getting the word out. Sure. And what we're talking about right now with the 5,000 students in the free course and then like an 8 to 10% conversion into a paid course, what we're talking about right now is your like most recent live launch. That's right. Is that what you would call it? So yeah. you make a decision at some point in 2020, okay, it's time for a live launch. It's not your first live launch, I don't think. No. How do you go about getting 5,000 people to sign up for your free live training? So previously, I'd done another launch, which I had 3,000 students for. I built a mailing list of about 3,000 by doing blog posts and posting to Facebook groups that allowed that. And I had announced a free class that a previous round of a similar free class, and that got 3,000 students in it. And that built my mailing list from 3,000 to about 5,000 students. Uh, 5,000, I think. It might have been 6,000. And so it's also been very good for mailing list signups. And then for this past class, I bought a an email blast from a weaving magazine. Oh, wow. And they have 55,000 people on their mailing list. And that got me another 2,500 or 3,000 signups. I think the actual number was 2,800 for this particular class. And then I got another 2,200 out of my own mailing list. And that, and from word of mouth, and that boosted my mailing list from 6,600 to 10,000 pretty much overnight. And that was how I got 5,000 people to sign up for this Discover Color class. And so... You ran the class. Was it just a Facebook group? You got all 5,000 people here. You mentioned how important the community is. You go live on Facebook or was there some sort of like Thinkific uh, portal as well? I, I used Thinkific for the class. And so I released the lessons on Thinkific and then I had a Zoom. I bought a 3,000 person Zoom room, which was wow. not cheap yeah. for, the, for the class. And I actually had 1,500 people for the first Zoom uh, live live demo session. It tapered off after a while. But I did, I had 3,000, like I said, I had that 3,000 person Zoom room and then we had a Facebook group. Why not just go live on Facebook? Well, we also streamed the Zoom room in live on Facebook for people who couldn't get into Zoom because we have a lot, we have a fair number of members who weren't comfortable using Facebook. Mm. 
And we wanted to give an alternative for people who didn't want to use Facebook. Mm-hmm. We thought about doing it in Thinkific, but the Thinkific dis- uh, discussion platform wasn't robust enough. And we also, uh, fr- Facebook, frankly, is just where the eyeballs are. Got it. So, so what I'm, I'm confused at what you use the Thinkific piece for then. Is that where maybe the, the recordings from the live sessions lived? That's where the recordings from the live session lived, and that's where the lessons lived. Okay, so there's a there's a pre-recorded component as well, in addition to the live that's right. lessons. Got it. Uh, we have an interactive JavaScript uh, lesson where they could play around with colors. And so we had a JavaScript program where they could play around with color and design their own uh, mug rugs, coasters. And so they were designing and weaving their own project. And so we had the, a JavaScript program that they used to do that all free that's all part of the free version it's all part of the free version so you gave away a lot it was a lot of your time you built up this awesome community it also built up your email list because there's a lot of word of mouth you're getting people coming in to the free course from other places that aren't just your email list right what was the process for you to to then take these people from free to the paid version of your course so about so it was a three week class and in week two I pitched the paid class. And I pitched the paid class and my co-teacher pitched her paid class as well after I was done pitching my paid class. So between the two of us, we um we wound up pitching two classes. I was pitching a class on color and she was pitching a, a class on the particular weave structure that the we were teaching. She was pitching a class on the particular weave structure that we were teaching for this particular um basically we were teaching we were teaching people how to weave a particular type of structure for this class and i was teaching the color part and she was teaching the weaving part mm-hmm. and then and you so she, you both had your own, like a separate course paid course to pitch to the same that's audience right. that's right well how did you get such a high conversion rate i mean did you just did you just pitch it on one of your normal live Zooms or was there more to it than that? No, I sent an email sequence of about five emails mm-hmm. and over a period of about two weeks. And I offered people that if they wanted to keep all the content of the free class, which otherwise would have expired, then they would they could sign up for the paid class. Otherwise, I offered that they could keep the content of of the free class by paying me 25 bucks. Mm, that's but kind of a downsell of sorts. It was a downsell. Yeah. And I had something like seven or 800 people sign up for the paid class. Amazing. So. Did a fair number of people take you up on that downsell? Uh, I did actually. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a good couple hundred more, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, and that wasn't a, a ton of money. It was mostly intended to offset hosting costs, but for people paying for a free class that they'd already had, that was actually pretty impressive. Right. How did, um, you know, I find a lot of times if I do anything free, you know, people aren't as motivated because they didn't, they didn't, they don't have any skin in the game. How did you motivate people that were in the free class to actually show up and do the work? You know, I think the community had a lot to do with it, but I was still getting an open rate of something like, on my emails for the free class at the end of the class. So that's pretty darn good for a free class. I would say Uh, it's good for just about anything. 
<laughs> yeah, it's good for any class, let alone a free class. But I think also there was a lot of hunger for that particular topic because a lot of people are have trouble with color and weaving. It's one of the biggest sort of things that people struggle with, and there's not a whole lot of information that's available on that particular topic. And so I regularly have open rates of uh, about 50%, 40-50% on my emails. So, Okay, so the the going from the free course into um, launching a paid course sounds like it was quite successful this latest go round mm-hmm. and it's a it's a similar structure except it's just more and longer and are you kind of in the middle of, of that right now i think you said six weeks are we kind of in that six weeks right now yeah we're midway through week two so so why do you why do you do it as uh live like this why, why not have some sort of evergreen approach with all pre-recorded videos well Partly it's because I haven't actually got a whole lot of, I'm still putting together the classes. Partly it's because there's a big community aspect of it. I have the Facebook groups. And so having people share their work is a big part of getting people to finish the classes. And so I find that getting people to finish the classes and getting student satisfaction, I think that having people share their work and see other students work is important to helping them learn. So I think that, so I I think that for my particular topic, it's probably better. It's better for the students. Is it better for you though? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I'm, I'm exploring the possibility of doing a more evergreen type model in general. I think that doing, doing periodic launches is definitely higher stress for me. I haven't gotten to the point yet where I have a a stable of classes that I can do, you know, that I can do one class every year and not have to make up the classes I go. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'll be experimenting with. I also want to try switching to maybe a membership model and try doing something like that because long term, I think that my, I have a small audience and so Long term, I think it makes more sense for me to work with an audience on a continuing basis rather than on a one one and done sort of class model. I think it does make a lot a lot of sense for from what I'm hearing. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm still at your website here. I mean, is there anything that I can really buy from you at this point, or is everything kind of sh- closed and waitlisted right now? The two weavealongs are basically all you can buy from me right now. Everything else is closed and waitlisted, and so that's the real problem that I have that I'm grappling with how to have offerings when I'm not running a live class. Uh, so I'm, I just clicked on Weave Along and it's $24.99. So is this basically the recordings from that? Is that, is that the downsell the essentially? That's the recordings from the uh, previous Weave Along. Okay. And so how to have a funnel and how to have, that's something that I'm going to figure out as soon as I'm done teaching this class. Interesting. You know, I'm still, in the, I'm still really in the setup process and I haven't gotten things streamlined and figured out yet. Well, I think from what I've seen, the typical progression of a course creator is to start with live launches. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of get burned out on the live launches because there's these, these really big highs and then, and then lows where, you know, you're, you're not, you're obviously not making as much money right now as you were, you know, a couple months ago when you did the live launch. Cause right now the only thing somebody can buy is for $25. Whereas back then you had a really, really sweet offer for something. And so once you start to get burned out on the live launches, then you transition to more of an evergreen model. But a lot, most people don't ever even get to the live launch part. They never even find success with, with live launching. So you've clearly done that. 
And it's interesting to hear mm-hmm. that, you know, once you get through this little session where you're actually presenting the information, then you're going to start transitioning toward more evergreen. That's kind of where I am right now. Yeah. Go back to just a few months ago when you were, you had this idea for how you were going to do the live launch. You're going to do the free piece and then the paid piece. Knowing what you know now and, and the, the students that went through it, the numbers, uh, what would you have done differently with your approach for this past live launch? I'm not sure I would have done anything differently for this particular live launch. I think that it was exactly the right thing because I think a lot of what I did during this past launch was about building my mailing list and about building my reputation in the community. Because these last two live launches really put me and my co-teacher on the map, so to speak. And a lot of what we did was building the idea of online classes because our audience is largely older women. The average weaver is somewhere between, I would say, 55 and 75 years old and is female. And so it's not very super comfortable with technology. And so the idea of online classes is not something that is deeply embedded into her psyche. And so this, these online classes were kind of proof of concept. And so it was, a lot of it was about getting the word out. If I were to do it over again, I think I'm not sure I would change much. Honestly, I might put a little less effort if I if I were doing another round, I think I would put a little less effort into developing an online class. I might try charging for it, um, charging maybe something very low for it just so that we could actually cover costs for the online class because it was not cheap to put on. I could only imagine. Um, But for the first round. I think we were just trying to get people in and explain to them that an online class could work and to establish a reputation as good online teachers. And I think we've done that. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so, but but overall, I mean, your your business doing this where you're teaching this online is only a couple of years old. Yeah, I've only been doing this for, I think, three years, maybe four years. At, at what, what point, and I'm assuming you're not still a project manager at Google, at what point were you able to quit your job? I actually quit my job five years ago. I was, uh, I kind of reached the point where I was done with tech and I woke up one morning and I realized that I hated my job and I had realized that before, but it was always my manager or the project I was working on or the company or something. But at that point I was working for Google and I was working on cutting edge technology. I mean, I was work. I was putting together a like, satellites for high resolution imagery that had never been done before for for goodness sake and you know that doesn't get more cutting edge you don't get more cutting edge than that and i'd like my manager just fine so i had to confront the fact that i just hated my job and at that point i had enough money to sort of take some time off and so i quit my job because it was either that or hate my job forever more which was going to lead to my hating myself and so I took a little bit of time and decided that, I, and then I came across this uh, idea of you know blogging and making money doing online classes. And I looked at it and I wanted to make a living doing weaving. But you know, at that point, the sort of standard wisdom was that if you wanted to make a living doing weaving, you had to be poor. And if you wanted to be a weaving teacher, you had to be poor. And I live in Silicon Valley, which is one of the most expensive areas in the of the country and 
But then I looked at this online teaching thing and I looked at the mathematics of it and I said, you know, I think I can make a living doing this. And I sort of worked, I've never worked harder in my life, (laughs) but this past year, I actually got to the point where I could not only make a living or at least pay my mortgage doing online teaching, but I could do it while giving away free teaching to, you know, 5,000 people which I think is just the the most wonderful thing ever. Yeah. I mean, if I would have told you that five years ago, like the day you woke up and you decided you hated your job and it was time to quit, what if I would have told you then like, hey, look, in five years, you're going to be, you're going to have uh, making a nice income from teaching people to weave. And those that don't necessarily even want to pay you, there's going to be thousands of people you're going to be able to help for free as well, while not being a poor weaver. Pretty cool. I would totally never have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said no way. Because <laughs> that's here I am. That's just wasn't that wasn't reality back then, but you made it reality. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I like to people in um like I I, I often want to say like real world, not that this me and you talking is not the real world, but like in my local community or local network. Um, they'll ask me about the you know transition from engineer to online piano teacher, and it's like, is that does that make any money? Like, how how is that? And you know, I usually will just say, well, you know, I make more doing this than I did as an electrical engineer, and just leave it at that. And I think that kind of tells tells a lot of the story right there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not making as much yet as I'm as I was making at Google, but you know. Give me another couple of years. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I could only imagine how much you were making at Google uh, for one, but it is safe to say that at this point, you know, five years later, you haven't had to go back and find another job. I have not, in fact, had to find another job. I joke that the present I got at, uh, at for my 50th birthday this past year was validation of my business model. And the present I got for Christmas was uh, not having to go cut my hair and get a, get a real job. <laughs> That's a that's a good that's a good present. Um, what if it didn't work out? What if it didn't work out? What where where do you think? What path would you go? Would you try to make an online course work in another niche, or, or would you uh, would you go back to more of a traditional job? I would have tried to make. I, I actually this is actually my second attempt at an online course. And and my first attempt was doing the creative process and craft, and that failed. And so I pivoted into color and weaving and. Uh, so this is my actual, my second go around, but I would have tried something, an online course in a different niche. Frankly, I would rather sweep the streets than go back to high tech. <laughs> I'm so enthusiastic about a high tech, I can't even tell you. <laughs> well, well, that's interesting that you f- basically failed at an online course business, uh, the, the first one. What, tell me what that niche was again, because I didn't quite understand what it was. It was about the creative process and craft. And so I actually wrote an entire book about the creative process. And problem was that I was solving a problem that everybody has, but don't realize that they have. And so everyone would actually benefit from paying attention to their creative process and improving it. But it's a problem that people don't understand that they have and therefore are not burning to solve, which means they're also not willing to pay money to solve it. And so the problem is that people would have a much better time and produce better work if they improved their creative process, but nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know, I think I'll go down to the studio today and improve my creative process. And but they yeah. do they do feel that way about this color and weave thing. Yeah, because what happens is they wake up, they go, "Oh my god, I have this beautiful green yarn and this beautiful red yarn, but my cloth came out this horrible brown." You know, 
I don't understand what happened. How do I prevent it from happening again? And that's when they get an email from me saying, hey, you know, you want to know how your green, how you keep that green yarn and red yarn from turning into brown? Take my class. And then they sign up for my class. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I see what you're saying that we want to, as course creators, we want to solve problems, right? But if, somebody, right. if somebody doesn't really know that they have a problem, it makes certain things harder. That's right. So with, with your current niche, um, people are well aware they have the problem. With mine, piano, people are well right. aware they have a problem. They want to play piano. Right. They don't know how to play piano. Pretty straightforward. But that doesn't mean that, that the other way can't work. You know, and, and I, think that's, I think Facebook ads really come into educating people about you know, problems they didn't know they had. You know, I, I, I just one random example I'm thinking of uh, a couple months ago, I saw an ad for this really clever, like camping chair that folded up really, really, really small. And you could just mm-hmm. bring it with you. And then you could, you could flip it out and sit in a chair. It's really portable and compact. Well, normally in situations where I would need something like that, we have these like bigger, I call them tailgate chairs. They're much bigger than what I was mm-hmm. seeing in the advertisement. So they kind of educated me on a problem I didn't have. It's like, okay, you you know you like chairs, you like portable chairs, but did you know that your chair could be actually like a third of the size and easier to transport and you can bring more of them along? And guess what? I bought the chairs from that Facebook ad because they educated me on a problem they didn't have. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that now that I've, I've mentioned that example? Do, do you think that there's a way you could have made it work by educating people on the problem that they didn't know they had? I don't think so because your example is you know that so for example, you know that you have, so they're giving you an example of a problem that you know that you have. So you have, they're just solving the problem more effectively for you. You know, you have a, you need a chair when you go camping and they're offering to solve the problem for you in a more effective way. Mm. But you know that you need to sit down when you're going camping. Now, if you have a creative process and I'm offering to, for example, let you uh, make your pot more efi- efficiently if you're a, if you're a potter, then I first need to ask the question of, do I even want to make my pot more efficiently? Does it matter to me? And so, well, if I talk to weavers and say, here's a trick that you can use to weave more efficiently, the first thing I'm going to get is a, but I don't want to weave more efficiently. And why should I try to make my, you know, why should I analyze my process to make it faster? So I'm solving a problem, but it may not be the problem that they think that they have. And it may not be a problem that they think is important to them. And so first I have to sell them on the idea that weaving faster is more important to them. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's even more key is it's, it's something they might not even consider a problem. That's right. And so my, I was trying to sell on the idea that if you have a creative block, this is how you get through your creative block. But often people don't understand that what's blocking them is this creative block. And so first you have to explain to them that, you know, frequently there's this internal sensor that causes you to get this creative block. And But in order to get through all that explanation, you first have to get them to pay attention for more than the for the two minutes that it will take to explain about the internal sensor and all of that. And Generally speaking, you can't get you you only get about two seconds to make that pitch. And so Seth Godin, who is sort of the god of internet marketing, has said that basically you need to you need to solve problems that people know that they have. And so I was solving a problem that people didn't know that they had. 
And it's a much, much harder pitch to sell people, sell the answer to a problem that people don't know that they have. Because first you have to educate them that they have a problem in the first place. Got it. So that's the, le- that's the hard lesson you had to learn the first time, but I'm sure that experience, right. um, I'm sure there's other things you could take away from that experience that helped lead to the success of this second online education business that's now successful. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, by the time I got around to the second business, I knew how to build a website. I knew how to write an about me page. I knew how to write all the other pieces. So if I were going to give people advice, I would say, don't stop to get the perfect topic. Don't stop to get the perfect about me page. Don't do all of that because you're going to make mistakes. And what you learn when you're still struggling in obscurity will actually serve you very well once you've actually had some success because it's better to make your mistakes while you're still unsuccessful. Because I would, you know, my initial classes only had a few students apiece, but I made mistakes in those classes that I would really rather not make when I have 5,000 students. Better to make those mistakes back then. It's better to make mistakes while you're still obscure than when you have a couple Mm, thousand students. So you're not making any mistakes anymore. Oh no, I'm still making mistakes, but I'm making better mistakes than I was <laughs> when I had. Well said. Let's go back uh, to to more of one area we started. Uh, let's talk about this wedding dress because you mentioned that it ended up yeah. in a museum. So how do you go from making your own wedding dress to it now being in a museum today? That was an interesting experience. So I decided that I was going to make my wedding dress, and I. So the funny story is that I actually made the wedding dress before I made the wedding. I was going to a workshop and I decided that it was a workshop about how to design cloth for a specific purpose. And it was being taught by a very well-known weaving teacher. And I thought, what could I possibly design that would be that difficult? And so I said, I'll design cloth for a wedding dress. And so I designed cloth for the wedding dress. And I came back and I blogged about it. And I said, by the way, you know, my partner and I are not engaged. This is a purely theoretical wedding dress. And so, of course, my partner reads my blog and she comes back and says, you know, I wouldn't actually mind being married to you. And so, of course, the wedding was on. And (laughs) um, so I designed it and made it for this wedding dress. And it was the triumph of dedication over ignorance because I had no idea what I was doing. And so I wound up spending a year and over a thousand hours making this wedding dress. And I hired somebody to help me understand couture sewing. And I actually had to weave the fabric for it twice because I screwed up the first time. And it came out just beautifully. And I blogged the entire experience. Uh, it's, it's on my com website. And it just came out magnificently and it won a whole bunch of awards. And eventually the American Textile History Museum reached out to me because they were looking for an exhibit uh, on wedding dresses with stories. And the uh, curator said that she had never heard of a wedding dress with a story like mine. <laughs> and they were also looking to add dresses to their collection. So they added it to their collection. And later the museum closed and it wound up at the, at the Henry Ford. So that was, that's the story. That's amazing. So, so I think the key takeaway here for the listeners is if you have a significant other that's dragging their feet on maybe a proposal, we need to blog about a potential outfit we're going to wear as a as just a hint, and then they'll see go. it and want to want to get married. It sounds like that's the way it worked out for you. That's kind of the way it worked out. Yeah, <laughs> love it. That's 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 quite a quite a thing to have on your resume. So 
I would say at this point, you're a successful course creator, right? And you're, you're teaching yeah. your, your, your passion, you're teaching it to thousands of people, paid and free. I mean, what, what does all of that mean to you? You know, it means I get to do what I love for a living as opposed to having to, I hate to say having to work for the man, but, but I get to decide what I do in the morning. I get to do what I love. I get to do a big diversity of things. So I'm running my business. And so I learn about every day about marketing. I get to make my own decisions about what I work on. I'm working a god-awful number of hours a week, but I work on what I want to work on. I work on a topic that I love. I teach a topic that I love. I get to see these wonderful posts in the Facebook group from people who are getting these amazing aha moments, you know, who are saying, wow, I've never looked at color this way before in my life. I feel like my, you know, my eyes have been opened to color. And that's just wonderful. That's amazing. That's what keeps me going, you know. And I never got this when I was working as a project manager. You know, when I was working as a project manager, we'd get to launch a project and then we'd get a bonus. And that was kind of that. It was kind of a much more gray existence. Nobody ever uh, was like, Tien, I just love the way you executed Scrum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> you know, and now I get people saying, you know, you have changed my weaving life. And that's something that you just, you know, you can't put a dollar amount on. No, that's amazing. And that's, that's one of the reasons that this podcast exists and that I, I try to, to help as many course creators as possible is because once you, once you find that you are passionate about something, whether it be piano or weaving or the millions of possible things somebody could be passionate about, being able to then share that with people and share it with people all over the world in a way that scales. I mean, this is just powerful, powerful stuff. So yeah. with that, um, to talk to the listeners of the podcast, which range from you know aspiring course creators to people that do have course businesses, uh, other than you know you've obviously shared plenty of advice already. But what other advice do you have for for aspiring course creators and course creators out there that might be listening to your story? I think the number one piece of advice I would give is don't be afraid of making mistakes because mistakes are an essential part of learning, and you will make mistakes. I mean, at some point, you are going to send out an email with wrong links. Because it's going to happen to everybody. I sent out an email last week. I've been doing this for eight years. I sent out an email last week that had like, you know, you can put first name and then it fills in their first name. I was missing one of the characters. So it literally said like Earth's name in it or something. And I got so many replies. It's like, hey, Jacques, you know, thanks for the email. But just a heads up, you you, you messed this up. And um, yeah, so mistakes happen for sure. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you're going to do it at some point. And, but don't sweat it because, you know, it's inevitable. The other thing I would say is don't feel, it's overwhelming to see all the recommendations that people give you. You're going to do it your way. And so I agonized for a long time about the fact that I simply cannot get an email out every single week, like clockwork, the way that everybody says that you should. And I'm currently agonizing over the fact that I haven't sent out a blog post since like the end of December. And here it is the end of January and you're supposed to send one out once a week or maybe once every other week. And I've just been too damn busy with my class and I haven't been able to get it out. And I eventually I realized that that is just the way that I roll. And so you don't have to do everything letter perfect the way that people recommend that you do. 
you'll find your own way of doing it. And, you know, that's the way that it works. You don't have to do YouTube just because somebody says that you have to do YouTube. So find your own style and roll with it. Well said. Don't be perfect. Uh, Don't be afraid to fail. And don't try to do everything because you can't. Right. Love it. Dan, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Pleasure to get to know you a little bit and dive into your story. I really appreciate all the transparency and um, and just gold nuggets and advice you've shared for the audience. So um, that's that's going to do it. We're about out of time here. But in closing, uh, let people know where they could find your stuff, because I'm sure you've at least inspired one person to to get into the weaving or the, or the color and weave part of this. Well, you can find me at www.warpandweave.com. Got it. So warpandweave.com, Tian Chu. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. K, welcome back. Uh, just completely inspired to to work on your the colors in your in your weaving or what? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think you probably thought I was joking about being a beginner, but uh, we had a little kit when we were kids and I have actually weaved or wove a pot holder, I believe. So woven? I have actually <laughs> weaved in my life. But um man, so Tian Yeah, I mean, when you're listening, like, congratulations on your success. But um, what a story of the first two thirds of the conversation. It's like, wow, Tien is an overnight success. And then you learn uh, this is multiple years in the making. And and especially when she says, you know, I already launched this other course and it was a complete failure. She, She launched that creative process and craft first course. But she says that was a valuable thing. She says it's better to make your mistakes when you're still unsuccessful struggling in obscurity and so almost some advice to to do your first course and and you know pick a topic that's not going to take off make your mistakes there i loved it there's probably more people listening that are are like haven't found the success yet right they even they either haven't started or they're they're struggling with the course they've launched this is a good lesson in that like maybe you need a new topic or something right um not not everybody I have on the podcast is just immediately successful. In fact, most people, there's, there's a good amount of struggle. And this is a great example. I love that we, we found that, that thread of, oh, wow, you've actually launched a different online course that was unsuccessful right. first. That, I can, I can really, that really hits home for me. I, I love hearing that. Yeah, I love that. Um, the biggest thing we've talked about a little bit, but just if you could say one word that's essential when you start a business, it's momentum. You've got to get that momentum. And man, does she get momentum. Um, I have this little thing that I say, like, there's only one way that I would open a restaurant. So you know how, you know how some, I, I just look around at businesses in general, but you know how some restaurants, they open and their parking lot is just empty for the first month. And you're like, yeah, they're going to fail really quick. And then others, sometimes they'll go into a location that's been cursed. It's had two or three businesses and they get off and you drive by there. You're like, oh my gosh, like, look at all those cars. So let's say I was going to open a Mexican restaurant. The only way I would do it is in the summer. And uh, essentially, I would open it up and I would reach out to my entire friend network. And I would be like, listen, if you show up on a Friday or Saturday night to this restaurant, I will give you your, your meal at half cost. If you wait outside for at least five minutes, I will buy your first drink. <laughs> and uh, I would put that out to everybody because, I mean, with that strategy, You know, it's like, it's like if you drive by a restaurant and there's this crowd of people and then you go in there and there's everybody laughing, having fun. I mean, that's, that's the party. And so what Tien did here, I mean, she created this party and, and then that momentum that she built in the, 
in the free course took her into her paid course and now she she can just continue the party in there so super cool so that's you would open the restaurant that way in order to start building that momentum as like as quickly as possible is what you're saying even if it loses money for you at first well yeah i mean i'd be trying to have have people pay at least for the the cost of the food but yeah i just think I just think that's the most important thing is this idea of momentum and starting the party however you can. Just really being, uh, this is kind of the same advice I gave you about your new your new community is that you have to go into that saying, we've got to build momentum into that community. We can't just, we can't just see if people like it. We have to make it likable. We have to make it a party in there. Mm, I like it. So, wh- so when is uh, Dr. K's tacos and tequila opening? Oh, I missed okay. that part. It's a terrible idea. I actually, oh man, this is a detour, but I spent a summer in Germany and I fell in love with a food called a donor kebab. Never Have heard of had it. one? Nope. Oh, they're pretty popular in France too. It's number one fast food in Oh Germany. yeah, yeah. Like a, yes, a kebab, like these little kebab, kebab. shops. It's like a, the top like fast food when you're walking down the street. A delicious. Top fast food. Yes. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> So I would eat those every Friday and Saturday night. And I came back to the United States. I was like living on my friend's couch. I was the guy on the couch. I was already enrolled at at chiropractic school, but it didn't didn't start till November. And I was like, maybe I should become the donor kebab king of America instead. And I went to the library and I checked out three books on how to open a restaurant. And I started reading them and all of them, all three of these books, the first chapter was why you should not start a restaurant. <laughs> and they tried so hard to talk you out of it. Like they yeah. had these jokes, like how do you end up with a million dollars starting a restaurant, Jacques? Tell me what. You start with three. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. So, oh man, if things had worked just a little bit differently, or if I had had parents with deep enough money, I'd be the donor kebab king of America. So, Well, good. It sounds like online courses and, and chiropractic practices are, are a better business model for you and me. Um, man, I have no interest in opening a restaurant either, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the appeal. I mean, it kind of sounds nice, but so, but I mean, I'm disappointed though, that, that Dr. K's tacos and tequila is not going to be a thing. Yeah. Well, if I won the lottery, I would actually do the. Got it. All right. Let's, let's get back on track, man. We've gotten okay. way off the rails. All right. Back to the, to, to warp and weave.com TN What's, what's the, what's the right. next takeaway on your list? Well, so she ran this free class and we hear about a lot of people running free classes, this, this little intro to their teaching style. But if it's done in an evergreen way and it's just these, these three to five pre-recorded courses, that does not have the energy that Tien mm-hmm. was able to create. She right. said, what was the most valuable part of that experience for her free course members? And it was this community aspect. And that led to this 8% conversion when she ultimately provided them a, a paid opportunity. And so the the thing that I I thought you kind of jumped over as far as a really valuable takeaway was the idea that she bought this email list mm-hmm. or, or bought a, a paid email from this email list of a weaving magazine with 55,000 subscribers. She said that led to 2,800 free course enrollments and added 3,700 additional email subscribers. So she, she said it got her list from 3,000 to 10,000 subscribers virtually overnight. And so I actually reached out to her and just said, hey, can you give me um, some more details about that? And so I'd like to take just a little bit and read some of this. Look at you, man, doing some Uh, prep. I like it. Let's see. Let's see. I'm excited to hear this. Well, sometimes I'm like, hey, what do you think about that? And you're like, yeah, that's a good question. So I I figured I'd. I love it. Tien's in the online course course community. I, I figured, well, I can reach out to her. 
Um, she said the email blast was available as a part of a standard advertising package from this handwoven magazine. The regular price is about $1,800, but she got a substantial discount for purchasing two email blasts, mm. one for the free class and one for the paid class. And so she said over a 10x rate of return on the ads. She said by comparison, she did r- try running some Facebook ads, but they yielded only a few dozen signups for the free class and maybe three purchases total overall. They didn't even pay for the ad costs, let alone the fees for the agency. And she said she attributed this to the fact that her class is in a relatively obscure hobby and that the class is for not beginners. So it's people that are very far into weaving. They're already into it. And so Facebook wouldn't be able to target the people that are advanced weavers. Uh, She said the moral of the story is that when you're buying ads, you need to be mindful of where your audience is and how to best reach them. A lot of people do Facebook ads because they've heard Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. My audience is certainly on Facebook, and I found my early audience via Facebook groups, but the Facebook algorithm hasn't been very good at targeting my audience. So finding this magazine was a key thing. Interesting. impressive. You know, I'm glad you followed up because I misunderstood it a little bit. Like, I thought she literally bought, like, the emails and then imported them into her own email autoresponder, but but that's not what it was. She actually paid to have them email and and promote this opportunity which in my opinion is way better because you're just you're you're kind of buying an advertising spot versus i just i was i was curious about just even the the ethics behind importing emails that you don't actually own and maybe that's the reason i didn't press into it any any further but that makes total sense and i'm i'm the wheels are spinning in my head a little bit about that that's it sounds like a cool advertising idea Right. And so as she talked about that, I remembered that this was something mentioned in Traffic Secrets. And so I looked it up in Traffic Secrets. Here's Russell Brunson's advice. Um, He says that he will, whatever his niche is, he'll Google my niche in email advertising, or he'll Google my niche in online media kit and just see what comes up. He recommends joining their list for a few weeks before buying. He says that they only send tons of promotions. It's not worth paying. And then he says, publishers usually try to have you pay based on their subscribers, but you want to request a report of the last five to 10 emails to see the actual open rates. So you know how many active subscribers that you're actually paying for. Um, He says exactly what you just said. He says, never send to their list from your system. He says, if a publisher suggests that, he says, run, it's a scam. And then he also says that he's tried sponsorship ads within the emails and they don't work. So there's there's Russell Brunson's advice from Traffic Secrets. Good stuff, man. I like how you just tied all that together. And and yeah, that was my concern. It's just I just didn't know about like I, I thought we were just buying an email list, importing it to our email autoresponder. But this strategy sounds awesome. Right. And it's just if it's done the right way, it comes across as that handwoven magazine is completely they verified, they're giving her social proof. Hey, this is somebody to follow, join the party. So awesome. What's next on the list, man? All right. So I love the idea of her making the wedding dress and just uh, a very interesting engagement story. <laughs> so uh, so I wanted to ask you, what's your engagement story, Jacques? My engagement story. It's a romantic one, man. You ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> so I discovered a small city in France called Annecy in 2008 when I was backpacking across Europe myself after um, having read that four-hour work week, hadn't quite started my job yet, wanted to go on an adventure. And I was just blown away by this little city in France. And so a couple of years after that, 
my wife graduated from college and she went backpacking with her sister. Um, and so I was able to arrange with her sister, you know, when they were going to end up in this little, I, I was like, you got to go to the city. It's amazing. So they, they went to the city and my wife didn't know I was going to be there. I completely surprised her. I flew to Europe. I was oh, wow. in the city. I was right by the lake the with the French Alps behind it. And, um, and they, they come up and um, I'm there. My wife completely freaked out because <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to be on the on that continent. And um, so she was just just completely blown away. Not only, I mean, she was blown away that I was there, much less proposing to her. We had been dating for maybe four years at the time. And um, yeah, so I, I got down on one knee. And, you know, it's funny because I remember like it was yesterday. I was like, I asked her to marry me. And I was like, and she said yes, of course. And then I was like, well, you, you want to put the, the ring on? And she looked and she, she looked at her hand. She was like, but I'm already wearing a ring. And she, 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 she was just wearing jewelry and stuff. And she was just like so mentally not there. She was so confused. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the engagement story. And, and that's why we named our first daughter, Annecy. Oh my gosh, that's a great story. So were you, you must have been working with her sister to coordinate. Yes, exactly. I'd been working with her sister on that for months. Like she helped me to pick out the ring and then like we were coordinating and you know, this was this was before smartphones really, mm-hmm. or at least mainstream smartphones. So actually syncing up was harder yeah. than you might think because we couldn't just text each other. So, you know, we had to find little internet cafes and email and um so there were there were a few hiccups to to kind of finding each other, but we we did find and you know, it was it was it was a lot easier having that connection with her sister to be able to make it all work. Uh-huh. So she helped, she helped tie it all together. Now, one little question, but um, was the first thing she saw you getting down on your knee or did you give her a hug first? Yeah. So I was just kind of, I think when she saw me, I was probably on one knee. So it was, it was a lot, oh it was a lot at one time for sure. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, kind of uh, somewhat similar, although I, I will say yours is probably more impressive. <laughs> But uh, Val, as we were dating, she had always said that she um, she wanted to get married on a beach. And I'd kind of joke with her and be like, oh, you mean Sailorville Reservoir, which is this like really crummy uh, little lake that's north of town. And she'd be like, no. Um, But ultimately, I decided I was going to surprise her with this trip to this little island that was somebody told me it was kind of a romantic or special little island called Anna Maria Island on Florida. And so she had just graduated from nursing school. It was like her career number three was making it through that. And so I told her that I was taking her as a surprise trip to celebrate the uh, the graduation from nursing school. And yeah, we went out for a walk that first morning when we got there. And uh, we were walking along and she was totally into looking for shells. And so I got her, let, let her get a little bit ahead. And I like, then I like wrote in the sand, will you marry me? And then I start turning around to like call her back and this rogue wave comes up and completely like smears <laughs> out my thing. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> like, so let her keep walking. And I like, obviously make sure I'm further away from the water and I wrote it again. And then I, I turned around and I said, Hey Val, come back here. You gotta, you gotta look at this shell. And so she came back to look at the shell that supposedly I'd found and just, I got down on one knee and, and yeah, just burst into tears and just a really special moment. Well done, man. That's a, that's an awesome story as well. Just, you know, but, looking looking for shells and it's like, oh, all of a sudden this is not a shell, it's a ring. Well, and I knew if I tried to make it really complicated, I was just like, oh, <laughs> I'd like to maybe do something even more. But I'm like, no, it's uh, it's going to stress me out. 
Well done. So let me ask you this. This is another little off topic, but I'm having too much fun here to stop. Um, did you have any false alarms as you were like heading toward getting engaged? Like any days where your wife clearly thought that you were going to propose and then you didn't? No, I was actually getting my MBA at the time. Um, and so, you know, we didn't we clearly didn't have kids yet. Um, this is this is about 10 years ago. We're talking or I guess 11 years ago. We've, we've been married 10 years now. And I was getting my MBA online at the University of Florida. So I was busy, right? I was working my full-time job. I was coming home, um, working on my schoolwork, trying to do some sort of online business stuff. So I had very little time for her. And I always told her, you know, we, we talked about it. I was like, look, I'm not even going to think about marriage until I graduate from my MBA. But that was all a farce, right? That was all, oh, okay. that was all part of the plan. So she was honestly starting to get a little frustrated with me because we've been dating for a while. You know, we were both, you know, starting successful careers and, and all that mid twenties. And, um, but I, I, I fooled her good. I fooled her good. Cause I had a very good excuse. I was like, look, I'm busy, I'm not even thinking about it till I graduate. And then it was several months before I graduated that I, that I did that. Nice. Well, yeah. So I went, um, to check out this, this jeweler that like custom make jewelry. And, you know, he taught me all about choosing a diamond, choosing a ring. And then at the end of it, he was like, Listen, I can tell that you're a really analytical person and I can tell that you you're one of these guys that might research this, you know, for weeks, for months. He said, I want to tell you, like, when you start this process, he said, women kind of have a sixth sense about this. And he said, so if you delay, he's like, I'm just warning you, like, you should be somewhat swift with this decision because they can just sense that something changed. And he said it could cause problems for you. And I walked out of there and I was like false sense of urgency. That guy is like a sales scammer. I was like, whatever. So it took me about three weeks to like pull the trigger and order this ring. But then it's it's a, I think it was like a five week process for this ring to be be fully made and be back in my hand. And so there was this spring day and my wife and my first real date was out at this beautiful park called White Rock Conservancy. And uh, it was a nice spring day. I was like, well, let's go out and go to this park. We go for this long walk and we get to we get to the spot where we had a picnic that first day. And I'm like, oh no. I'm like, this would feel the vow like she's gonna get proposed to. I'm like, this is where we had that first picnic. I'm like, it would have been a perfect spot. I already had the ring ordered. I already had like the trip planned out, but I'm like, la da da, I just keep going, like, oh, no big deal. And her mood gradually gets worse and worse. We end up on the car on the way back to our home. And she's like in tears. She's like, maybe we should just break up. And I was like saying through gritted teeth, I was like, I was like, these things take time. <laughs> and I didn't want to spoil my surprise. But um, yeah, you know, we're you and I are we, we have things that we sell. And sometimes it seems like we create false senses of urgency. I, I totally thought that guy was just like, just trying to get me to buy his diamond ring. And I was like, whatever, dude. dude. And now I look back, I'm like, he was right. How could you have done that to your poor wife? She was well, ready dude, for it. it. It was a nice spring day. I needed, <laughs> we needed to go for a hike somewhere. I'm sure she's forgiving you now that she's got the full story. Right. All right. So back to Tian and the conversation. She branded herself as an art scientist. And we've talked about this in the past that you know, you you want to uh, be the guide for these people. And it's kind of cool to give yourself this like upgraded name, define yourself in this cool way. 
she branded herself as an art scientist. And it's like, she didn't take some tests. She didn't say that she had a certification, but she studied it. She became an expert. And then she was able to teach people that whole concept of your results are your certification. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jock, just this morning, I was like reflecting on this and I came up with a new title for you. Oh, goodness. I'm nervous. Uh, it's prepare for your mind to be blown. You ready for this? I think so. All right. So here, here's your intro to your webinar now. My name is Jock Hopkins, and I am an expert pianist. That's piano analyst. My superpower is breaking down this complicated skill into something anyone can learn quickly and experience so much joy doing it. I so like it. Pianist. You like it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can get down I with that. that. Your mind looks blown. <laughs> well, pianalist. I mean, it's, 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 it's true, though. I mean, you obviously understand my approach to learning piano and my marketing as well and how my lessons are unique. So everything you said is completely accurate of what I'm trying to do. Uh, piano list. I'll have to think about that, the word itself, <laughs> but everything else I'm totally on board with. All right. Well, what do you call yourself right now? Would you still just say I'm a piano teacher? Yes. The world's best piano teacher. I shouldn't say just <laughs> yeah, the world's best piano teacher. We'll see. Jacques, the pianist coming to a city near you. Well, so the last thing, just uh, I enjoyed the autopsy on why the creative process and craft uh, that first course didn't take off. And I found it really interesting. She she felt like this was something that people would really respond to and be excited about. But it sounded like the main the main uh, transformation of this course was that it made people who do crafts more efficient. And uh, then when she presents it to people, they're like, well, I'm actually trying to fill time with my craft. <laughs> like I enjoy it. And so, so these people weren't really opposed to having this, this project take them some time. It's bringing them joy and they want to savor it. So in general, products need to, they need to make you or save you money. They need to save you time or they need to somehow improve your relationships. And so, yeah, obviously if the main thing that you do with your course is save somebody time and they actually want that, that process to take time, then it's not going to sell well. So really interesting. Cool. Well, I mean, overall, I think this is a great lesson on just about any niche can work and and even really niche down like a niche within a niche can work. And also that there's no one right way to do this whole thing as well. This is this whole way that that TN went about launching, doing it free with the community, a lot of live stuff going into the pay. Like I've never quite heard that story before. And she's been very successful doing it. So there's no one right way to do this either. So a lot of valuable takeaways here. So I appreciate TN very much for coming on and and sharing this um, with everyone. So man, I guess that's going to do it here. Dr. K, thanks for joining me here for another episode. This has been episode 170. So you can find all the links and show notes to to what we've been talking about here by going to oc.show slash 170. And until next time, get out there and make some next level courses that provide transformation to your students and not just information. Take care, everyone. <laughs>